You know, I think universally important is that notion of connectedness and of creating safe, inclusive, equitable, wonderfully nourishing places called schools for our kids. And not just kids. All of what we're talking about is equally good at helping the adults in the building. When we create that kind of environment for our kids, we're helping create it for the adults. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Jamie Anderson, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers alike. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and Everactive Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today, we have the chance to talk to Cindy Andrew about substance use from a school health perspective. Before we get started today, I just want to situate our conversation in the land. I'm a guest in Mo Kinstis, or Calgary, which is the traditional and ancestral territory of the Nitsitapi, or Blackfoot peoples, which includes Siksiga, Gaina, and Pagani. And the Treaty 7 region is also home to Sutina and the Ayahe Nakoda nations, which include Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley, and of course, uh, the Métis Nation of Alberta as well. Now, Cindy is joining us today from what is now known as Victoria, a very colonial name, very colonial inheritance, but that land is the unceded traditional and ancestral territories of the Lekwungen peoples, now known as the Esquimalt and Songhees nations, as well as the Husainich peoples. Most of the province, if you didn't know, of British Columbia is actually unceded First Nations territory. And our conversation today is very much about challenging neat and tidy narratives, and digging deeper into complexities around substance use and how we teach about it. I think part of that work involves challenging grand narratives that end up reinforcing stigma. One grand narrative that I think we have to challenge that ties into this conversation is the idea that colonization is quote unquote over or in the past. Sometimes when we do these land acknowledgements, we acknowledge the traditional and ancestral territories, it can become like a repetition that loses its meaning and also kind of reinforces that this was something of the past and we recognize that it happened, but like, let's hurry up and move on. So maybe that's a good starting place for our conversation today is to challenge that narrative because colonization and the inheritances, I guess, of colonialism remain pervasive to this day. For instance, the fact that British Columbia is comprised of unceded territories that were never surrendered to the authority of the Canadian government, yet BC's Indigenous nations have to continue to fight to protect their land and their water from exploitation for economic gain is just some evidence of this, that it's still going and sometimes we forget that. I think the ways that substance use and abuse are viewed as individual choices and often as individual failures just continues to perpetuate stigma and misrepresent the public health concerns about substances and substance use. I think in recognizing how colonization is current and ongoing rather than just in the past can help us to dig into some of the more complex and interrelated factors and structures that actually influence substance use. So with that in mind, Welcome to the pod class, Cindy, and thanks for joining us. 
Um, we like to start each episode by asking our guests about their favorite ways to get active, because of course, the podcast format is really amenable to the ability to multitask and get active and moving while we listen. So first question for you today, what are your favorite ways to move right now? Yeah, great question, Jamie. Thanks for asking. Walking and running are my two favorite go-tos for being physically active every day, somehow, some way, move this body as much for my uh, mental health as for my physical health and overall happiness. So great question to start with. Amazing. I live really close to uh, Nose Hill Park here in Calgary. So I understand those those two go-tos because, you know, it doesn't take much to just get up and moving over to the park and, and enjoy the outdoors, especially with this beautiful summer weather. Yeah, absolutely. So Cindy, you have a ton of experience in health promotion in a number of different settings, including in schools uh, and also through a research lens with the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background and what brings you to this conversation about school health perspectives on substance use? Sure thing. Um, Well, I guess it's probably nice for you and your listeners to know that I, I was a teacher originally. And while it feels like it was about a thousand years ago, and it, you know, depending on your perspective, 30 years could be a thousand years ago. <laughs> um, but I, uh, at that time, I really was struggling as a new teacher, just trying to basically promote health and well-being through the work that I did. And my work was, was not just limited to uh, a PHE teacher. I was, like many new teachers, asked to uh, cover a variety of ages and stages and grade levels and, and subject areas. Ah, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> and so I really, you know what, I, I just had a passion about this thing we call health. I also was equally passionate uh, about this notion of schools as a really important setting to promote health. And now we know that health and learning are inextricably connected. So it's pretty hard to learn if you're not healthy. And it's also a little harder to be healthy if you're not learning. Mm -hmm. That's what really led me, ironically, to leave the teaching profession (laughs) to work alongside a huge number of amazing educators across the country. I started off as a teacher in Ontario. I've worked at a pan-Canadian level in in a variety of different capacities. And now I'm based here in Victoria and B.C., so, you know, I, I basically straddle the world of, of health and learning in the work that I do. And I'm super, super grateful for it and super stoked, by the way, to be joining you today on my run this morning. I was thinking about our conversation the whole time and, and what a privilege it is for me to be invited to be part of these kinds of conversations. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. And I think it's interesting as a teacher who I've taught in the classroom for about eight years, and I've started to explore different related and parallel fields to education. I think education and, and teaching is definitely a gateway uh, for so much interrelated work as well. And I, and I think it's great to get that kind of snapshot as your starting point as a teacher and, and where you are now. Yeah, I will mention one more thing, because I didn't really touch on the substance use specific piece of your question and around, you know, kind of what what drew me to this work. I am a believer that we don't and nor nor could we ever expect to be experts on everything that we are asked to help young people learn. And mm-hmm. you know, ditto when it comes to the health side of things. So whether it's sexual health, uh, substance use, 
bullying, et cetera, right? We're, we don't need to be the experts. And in fact, it's, a, it's almost a good thing, I suppose, that I'm much more of a generalist in the health promotion world than I am specific, for instance, uh, expert around the substance use file. Lucky me, I've had the privilege to work alongside a lot of real Canadian thought leaders and thinkers and academics. Uh, so I think like any good teacher, right, you know where to go to get the good stuff. Um, but you don't need to have it all internally. It's just part and parcel of what you bring to your role. In fact, far from it. Absolutely. Well, and we're all learners throughout our lifespan. So it's it all just depends on how we take up that learning along with our students. Absolutely. I think that's important. So Absolutely. awesome. Thanks, Cindy. So on the subject of substance use, there's a long history of different models that have been used to understand and respond to, uh, I think, what we refer to as the umbrella of addiction. Some of these models, like the moral disease or psychological models, and I think they all have different names and, you know, different textbooks in different fields, but all of these kind of see the individual as the source of addiction, kind of through that behavioral lens, whereas other models situate the source of addiction, and I say source not necessarily just in an individual sense, but the sources of addiction in social learning or the sociocultural environment. I think a key concern, and this is, again, from my lens in the educational context, is that there are bits and pieces of these different and often competing models that are so entrenched in schools, either implicitly or explicitly. Uh, for instance, many schools treat substance use as a disciplinary problem, with punishment as the primary school response. And to me, this reads as... Uh, a bit of a problematic attachment to moral values when it comes to guiding our approach of substance use. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit more about why should we look at substance use instead from a comprehensive school health perspective and how that approach might differ from those other approaches I mentioned. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're asking the question. There's a, an expression, nature via nurture right? And it's not one or the other. And we are all influenced by our environment. And so, you know, just like humans themselves are complex, so too are, you know, those interesting human behaviors, whether it's substance use, sexual health, etc. So what we do know about a comprehensive school health approach, and, and certainly aside from the evidence, which we've got reams of that, is this notion that the ecosystem that we're part of, helps influence who we are and, and what we do. And while we know, for instance, that yes, information and, and meaning making with that information is important, so too are you know, access to supportive services and a safe and welcoming, nurturing, inclusive kind of and equitable kind of environment. And that policies that are there to help actually create those kind of environments with the intention of helping kids flourish. So I want to um, touch on your, your comment around often that schools treat substance use as a discipline matter and just challenge us all. Uh, and, may, you know, if, I, if we were in the room together with our listeners, I would, I would welcome people to, to nod if they would agree um, or disagree, depending, um, with the following three statements. Drugs can be fun. Drugs can be helpful and drugs can be harmful. And if you think about that last one, that's our default. That's where we go. Of, oh my God, drugs will kill. Okay? 
seldom do we allow ourselves within the context of education as we think about how do we help young people navigate this world where in fact substance use is a fairly regular thing. I don't know about you, Jamie, but I started my day with a great dark roast coffee, probably (laughs) more prevalent substances used in this world. Follow that up with prescription medication that my doctor needs me to take in order to address some health challenges I have. And this evening over dinner, I'm quite likely to have a glass of wine as I host my daughter and her good friend for dinner. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think we, first of all, need to acknowledge that substance use is part and has been for millennia part of the human experience for a whole bunch of reasons, whether it's spiritual enlightenment, whether it's stress management, whether it's just for pure fun and social needs, et cetera. So uh, I guess this, again, underscores this notion that humans are complex beings. Substance use, like mental health and lots of other human behaviors, are equally so. And so our approach to addressing substance use with kids can't be things like throwing posters on a wall to say drugs will kill when more often or not, they don't actually. So in essence, we're lying Mm -hmm. to kids, right? Yeah. And, you know, from the punitive take of things, we know and we have known for a very long time that punitive measures harm kids and in fact set them up for more problems and problematic behavior. So, you know, the fact that as many schools further marginalized kids by, for instance, suspending them because they were caught vaping in schools is a really good example of what not to do, right? Interesting. I wonder, as subject matter teachers, we obviously often take a scaffolded approach to learning, Mm -hmm. but it seems like when it comes to the area, and I I would probably lump sexual health into here as well, but like sexual health and substance use, it seems like we have this oversimplified, like paternalistic approach of no means no, and that's kind of it. Do you have a sense of maybe where that comes from based on your experience in this field? Or do you think it just is one of those cultural things that um, is so embedded that it's it's hard to shift away from that? Whew, that is a loaded question. Without going too deep into that, I think that, you know, the the ideology that we often default to is not very helpful for humans, right? And I mean, even the word discipline to some means, I'm going to show that kid who's boss. It's about power and control, where in fact, discipline, you know, coming from the word disciple is actually to walk alongside and to build and to support and to comfort and to allow or support people with what they need so that they too can have the discipline they need to achieve their goals and dreams. I think that fear often probably also underscores people's concern around how do I address this? Talking about substance use with kids doesn't mean they're all going to go out and get high. It's how it's done, right? And it's also, you know, the conditions that we we help foster in this world of ours that goes well beyond the classroom, but certainly the classroom and the school is a really really important setting. I also just want to mention, and you haven't asked this specifically, Jamie, but if it's okay to just comment a little bit more on this, this notion of sort of those simplistic approaches. And, and often if I was in a, in a classroom having conversations with teachers, a follow-up to those, not if you would agree drugs can be helpful, harmful, and fun, and all, all of those would be, you know, think about and reflect back on your experience with drug education growing up. 
And you, you get an awful lot of people who will probably be in the camp of either we didn't get any or, oh, yeah, we got the crashed car and the dramatic presentation. And, you know, you might get, if you're lucky, hopefully, uh, some folks who, who would say, you know what, there were a couple of teachers that we had really good conversations with. And it's from that person I learned the most. Mm. We need to move past these simplistic approaches. Some teachers might call them the one and done's or the one shot wonders. Well, yeah, and I think it tends to reinforce the notion that substance use or, or misuse is a choice, right? Like we gave all of the information check mark for us. And now what you do with that is on you, or at least that's my experience in the classroom and teaching and, you know, seeing things like the DARE, D-A-R-E program mm-hmm. in action. Of course, now when we know much, so much more, that program has remained fairly similar to when I was a grade five student and yeah. encountered that. So yeah, definitely interesting. And I think one thing I was just going to add and reinforce, I think for our listeners is, you know, relationships are not simple. And and we know that as as teachers, even pre-service teachers working with students who are complex living beings, and and we've got a number of them in our classroom, those uh, humans aren't simple and our supports shouldn't be either. And unfortunately, I think taking that simplistic approach can sometimes, yeah, Yeah. cause barriers or breaks in in relationships that are so valuable uh, for those students. No, I, I, I couldn't ag- agree more. And also, you know, that sort of binary way of thinking, right, mm-hmm. um, is not very helpful because I don't know about you, but me personally, there, you know, that sort of um, black and white type of thinking is just so reductionist and not very helpful for complex human beings, yeah. right? And this is where I think, you know, drug education is about education. Mm -hmm. It is about building the knowledge and skills in a supportive, caring kind of environment where individuals actually grow their sense of agency. You know, one of my colleagues said this once, and if honestly, if we could just help our kids be better BS detectors in life, yeah, (laughs) we're probably going to be setting them up for success. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But first, we need to cut our own BS, I think. And I think we have to kind of challenge our own understanding, prior knowledge, or what we've taken from the systems that we work in around substance use and and kind of shift to that broader kind of public health approach. So you bridge two worlds as both, you know, being involved in the research side of things and as a practitioner as well. So I'm wondering if we could speak to like the research world and then practice in classrooms and schools. So in terms of the research perspective, what do you think are the prominent issues in the field concerning substance use amongst children and youth? This is where I'll go on record. I'm actually not a researcher. I'm privileged to work alongside a lot of them, as I alluded to earlier. I look at the, the challenge from the research perspective is on the implementation side of things. We've known for a long time that we need to do things differently when it comes to addressing substance use in schools. And we're not making very good progress in that world. And part of my biased observation of that is, well, we know what we ought to be doing. This, the world or the system isn't ready for it yet. There's this worry about fear. You know, I'll quote a principal here who basically said to me, this is several years back now, we need something between doing nothing and hanging a kid out to dry. Yeah. There's a good example, right? Of sort of that binary where in the school professional feeling like, okay, I know it's not very good to suspend kids, but yet we continue to suspend them. 
and or other punitive measures, right? So I think the, the challenge from a research perspective is more around the implementation and that knowledge mobilization piece and that systems readiness within the K to 12 system. So then I, I guess that implementation issue is, is kind of a concern from the research side. What do you think are the prominent concerns from an educator's perspective? And are they the same? Are they different? Uh, what's your sense on that? It's sort of related to the implementation side of things. And I think from an educator's perspective, there's probably a fair degree of confusion around what it is they ought to be doing related to helping young people become drug literate, as I say. And you have all sorts of programs and packages arriving at school and school district doors saying, try this, try that. You have, in many cases, you know, partner agencies knocking on doors, inviting or hoping to be invited in to do their presentations and the like. In the environment I live in, we have investment by our local health authority from the, the medical perspective of a program that is very dramatic and hard hitting that, you know, receives a substantial amount of dollars to help make this program work that actually runs sort of counter to what the evidence tells us around what's a more promising approach and how we address substance use with kids mm. and basically scaring them and suggesting that, you know, drink too much and you're going to end up on a crash cart in the ER. Mm. You know, I think, again, counters the, the evidence-based approach, hence the confusion. And I also think, and I alluded to this earlier about fear, and, and I'd add to that apprehension around that, that worry that they might say something or do something that will upset people, mm-hmm. right? And I'll use an example of a workshop it was an elementary school-focused learning session in a school district here in British Columbia, And we were working through something and um, one of the learning activities was basically around helping discern, you know, what's riskier substance use than other. And it really got at that notion of that sometimes drugs do have a place in our lives, Mm -hmm. right? It's about the factors that underpin the use. So the context, the type of drug, the situation you're in, what's driving the behavior, those are all important factors that, you know, can make a difference between a healthy relationship with substances and perhaps not. And so the, uh, the one teacher had said to her classroom of colleagues, well, I can't possibly say that drugs can be helpful at any time. And one of her colleagues spoke up and he said, well, then you'd be lying. Yeah. Because I don't know about you and kind of just like I alluded to earlier, you know, my morning coffee or my prescription medications or my glass of wine with a friends at the end of a work week, there is a place for that. And that doesn't compromise one's health, right? In fact, some would say it actually enhances it quite beautifully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And when it's situated, um, yeah, contextually, I think that makes all the difference. I think about, sorry, that conversation just reminded me about being in the grade five classroom where students are being told what's good and bad. Um, you know, this is good. Alcohol's bad. Smoking is bad. And you have students who are kind of confronted with this moralistic perspective and then trying to make sense of it in their own lives like well my mom you know will drink wine or like my dad smokes this parent smokes like what does that mean about them like are they bad and uh, placing a moralistic lens on it I think when you work in teaching it's really difficult because you're not existing in a vacuum but you exist in this like broad fabric of political beliefs and moral beliefs and expectations and all of these kind of pieces that are swirling around and so I can understand why 
why teachers might feel that pressure of like, well, I don't want to endorse this or condone this, but just revisiting that, well, it's more complicated than that. And let's, let's have these nuanced conversations because it's not a matter of bad or perpetual harm, but you have to contextualize it and, and understand that, yeah, there's time and place where we might have different values and beliefs on that. And that's important, especially when we're, you know, sharing that learning with kids and asking them to then make judgments about family based on those like oversimplistic ideas. Yeah, totally. And not to mention they're, they're terribly stigmatizing, potentially. Mm, yeah. So they shut down the conversations. So for the kid who, for instance, parents regularly use cannabis, which is now a, a legal substance yeah. for adults. So how do we help that young person grow up and, and have the competencies that they need to do what they that's good for them, not a prejudged end goal yeah. determination, right? And I think that's part of it too, is what we're we're hung up on here's here's how you should live your life and jamie i don't know about you but most of us probably don't like to be told here's how you right this is help me live my life in a way that works for me absolutely oh that's so fantastic cindy i really appreciate that and uh and i think it it asks us as teachers to kind of yeah challenge ourselves and and be realistic about whether those are actually our values or if they're just you know kind of entrenched oversimplistic values. Well, there's another parallel here that I think is quite helpful. And I believe in the Alberta context, you're familiar with SOGI 123 and that the work around sexual orientation and gender identity and the background work to support a shift in perspective in how we talk about it with kids and with parents and how we support administrators who are, you know, confronted with situations where you may have, you know, polar opposite perspectives from the community, is that, you know, we're there with substance use. And I think about here in British Columbia, SOGI, the work around sexual orientation and gender identity has evolved so beautifully. And yes, there will be some who say, well, I don't think that's right. I'm pulling my kid from Mm -hmm. the system. But the system isn't defaulting to, oh, well, then it's okay. We'll shift our thinking. The system is here's what we believe and here's why. And while you may not agree with this, this has reams of evidence behind it and is really intended to help prepare our young people to survive and thrive, right? So I think those sort of layers of support and investment in the system that helps them feel like they have the tools and resources and the quote unquote official permission from the gods above, right? And I put quotes around the God part too, but the, um, that illusion of, oh, I can't have this kind of conversation with my kids in the classroom. If you were to talk to superintendents and directors and teacher, you know, leaders, et cetera, they'd say, yes, we actually want you to have those conversations, but we also recognize we need to support you to do that. Yeah. And that's that systems readiness piece. Well, that's really helpful. And I think I'm interested in taking a closer look at what this could look like in terms of that implementation piece that's that's a gap. And like you mentioned, there's it's not like there's a shortage of information about substance use. It's about the capacity to sift through that which has perhaps institutional approval, but is in opposition to best practices as, as stated in research. So I'm interested if we can kind of dig into this school health approach to understanding substance use a little bit more closely, and then also those paradigms that inform that approach. I think we like to think that there's like a single silver bullet answer, like a single easy answer to the question, you know, what is the 
cause or source of addiction. Because if we could just find out that single source, then we can fix it. Uh, And like you have said a, a few different times, it's obviously much more complicated than that. So maybe we can talk to you from that comprehensive school health perspective. What are some of the primary risk factors for substance use amongst children and youth? Imagine, you know, you've got a teeter-totter and and a fulcrum in the middle. And at one end of that teeter-totter, you've got risk factors. And at the other, you have those protective factors. And I'm really interested in the fulcrum that that teeter-totter rests on. And that, you know, sort of the health-promoting, resilience-building factors. But I know I need to answer your question. So, um, you know, in terms of risk factors, there's a whole slew of them, depending on what lens you look through. From a community perspective, obviously, economic disadvantage, right? If we, the royal we, could invest in addressing poverty, mm-hmm. we would make a whole lot of gains both in education and health outcomes. Social, cultural discrimination and isolation. And, you know, every day, sadly, we see examples of that there is much work to be done in that. So if you're growing up in a very marginalized or racist system that doesn't lift you up, but in fact does the opposite, that's probably going to set you up for some problematic behaviors as well. And, you know, the availability. So if I'm raised in a household where the norm is, you know, a intense substance using culture, that's a risk factor. I think about a a session and another teacher had commented on the work we were doing around more promising approaches around substance use. So all my parents would not go for us having a conversation. And I said, would those be the same parents that bring margarita mixes (laughs) to kids tournaments? And I lived experience. My kid played a sport. We were all off in a different community and it was partyville for the parents. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of the role modeling, the accessibility, I throw that one in there because it was a good reminder of that parents also need to be part of this conversation. And that's, again, where our comprehensive school health framework obviously very much includes that. And I'll get back to your question around the, the risk factor. So on the family front, you know, those low parental expectations. So kids actually, as much as anybody who's had had children and, and teenagers in particular may feel like their opinion doesn't matter, it matters a lot in terms of what are the expectations and the hopes and dreams we have for our children? And do we do we communicate that to them? The, you know, the sort of tolerance level of parents towards kids using substances, right? So, you know, there's a big difference between having a celebratory sip of champagne on Christmas morning with your family versus buying your teenager uh, alcohol so they can go out and have fun on prom night, right? Mm -hmm. So big difference. Um, From a peer perspective, in terms of risks, you look at, you know, that isolation factor, the, the peer rejection, the hanging out with those that might might be contrary to who you normally are, but you're searching and we humans have an incredibly deep seated need to connect. And you know, who we connect with often influences who we are and what we do. And I'm actually, uh, I think as a young teacher, I remember listening to this person who, um, who spoke related to gang prevention. And he said, why do you think kids hang out in gangs? They hang out because they want to belong. And if they're made to feel welcome by this cohort and nobody else, well, guess where they go? Mm-hmm. And that really stuck with me. And I think that obviously underscores why the work we do as educators and basically as just good humans, I yeah. hope, yeah. Is, is really put relationships first and foremost in the work and the efforts we do 
from a school perspective, that poor attachment to school, that gets to that school connectedness world that I'm sure those listening have probably, I hope, been talking a lot about. Poor school performance, sometimes, you know, if a kid's continually experiencing failure in school, that's doesn't lift them up necessarily, right? Um, And also transition points. And I think, you know, this is something that we may as health promotion folks sometimes may say, oh, well, those transitions, that's up to, you know, schools to figure out to support kids so they help them choose their courses when they go to high school, et cetera. And I think, you know, at those transition points, whether it's into elementary school or middle or secondary school, all of those are super important and are times for really intentional efforts to, to nurture an environment where where young people feel welcomed and supported and and see themselves as belonging to that place and it's not a one and done tour of the high school mm-hmm. right yeah so that's not very helpful and then from an individual perspective you know things like temperament i have one child who is absolutely a sensation seeker and probably no surprise she dabbled more problematically than her other And by the way, she's doing just great Mm -hmm. by saying that something is a rest factor doesn't set you up for problems. It's no guarantee, right? And I think I should have said that right at the outset, um, because we're very quick to want to label people and to pathologize. Oh, well, that person is from X home. So, you know, that's the trajectory we're on, to which I'd say, frankly, I think that's a pretty crappy way to be thinking. And it is in all of our responsibilities to to wrap around and support all kids but particularly those who may in fact be more at risk right absolutely well i asked the question about risk factors really to kind of tease out the complex and entangled factors that work together that might lend to that use but i think you have set this up beautifully with that symbol of the the kind of teeter-totter and that fulcrum so that point that, yeah, risk factors are not a guarantee, it's it's not like causation. But before we get to that fulcrum piece, because I, I think we should speak to that a little bit more, I think it's interesting also how mm-hmm. in this entire conversation, when we talk about those risk factor pieces, I'm not hearing you say that like a lack of knowledge about substances is, is a huge risk. Like really what you're saying is that there are so many more complex forces at play. And if we're going to support our children and youth in navigating substance use, we have to be able to uh, address all of these different forces. It's not a matter of like, if we teach students to say no to drugs, then they will say no to drugs. It's actually like, well, actually, we need to, to support with school attachment, which has a whole bunch of different layers, we need to support with peer attachment, familial attachment, relationships, like all of these different pieces. And I really like what you said about addressing poverty. I think that's one thing at a, at a school level and jurisdiction level that we can lend some support is addressing those uh, socioeconomic barriers that lend themselves to environments where students might be at risk at, uh, for certain things. But nevertheless, I, I want to get back to that that metaphor if uh, if you're interested to speak to that balance between protective factors and risk factors and that fulcrum in the middle. Uh, do you want to tease that out a little bit more and kind of share with us the role of health promotion and then that balance between protective factors and risk factors? You know, I, I hope those listening now are thinking, oh my gosh, now as a teacher, my job is to address poverty and, you know, have impact on that. And nobody for, you know, no one system can do all of this work. And this is where I think it's really important to make sure that we work and we come alongside our educators and recognize 
there's lots to be done. Teachers, schools alone cannot do this. It's that proverb of it takes a village and that's really true. But we also need to be very mindful of those kinds of factors. And we are. And, you know, I I don't know about you, but I'm, I bet you, you probably had snacks in a bottom drawer that for kids who might come to school hungry, whatever their socioeconomic bracket, you had some nutrition there to help get them through to lunchtime or over the lunch, um, et cetera. So I just... I wanted to interject that with that notion of schools cannot nor should be expected to do all of this work alone. So looking at the protective factors then, you know, where can schools play an important role is first and foremost that caring relationship within the school community is absolutely critical to helping a young person succeed, whatever metric you want to apply, whether we're talking about academic success, school retention, whether we're talking about uh, young people's mental health, or other potentially problematic behaviors, sex, drugs, etc. In fact, next to family nurturance, school connectedness is probably the most significant, important protective factor in a young person's life. I'll say that again next to family connect attachment, you know, that lovely, that nurturing connection that happens between parent and child. Next to that, school connectedness is the most significant protective factor in a kid's life. Wow. So that, you know, that is something that we all as educators and those working with our education partners are able to help address. Um, this is where, as much as we're talking about universal efforts around addressing substance use, you're not even really hearing me talk a whole lot about, and this is what this learning activity could look like, right? We're not even having those conversations, at least not yet. But those sorts of things we do, that smile, that coming alongside and being there for somebody, you know, consider that a wonderful evidence-based strategy at reducing problematic substance use. Wow, yeah. Same with helping young people learn about empathy, about kindness, that has absolute relevance to also helping reduce problematic substance use. Absolutely. And that's the day in day out work that teachers are doing. I think you nailed it there. That relationship piece is something that comes first for a lot of teachers. And it's more impactful than that one and done. So I think that's really helpful to situate it in those relationships. And there were a couple of other of those protective factors that really, you know, they're, they're the mandate of education, right? They're about helping, helping a young person develop the literacy and the capacity, for instance, for problem solving, how to think your way through a tough situation. Again, you might not think of that as relevant to substance use, but, you know, what's that situation when you're a young person confronted with a situation where you see a lot of risk and you're not sure about a way out? right? When it comes to a 40 down by the river on a Friday with a bunch of school baits, right? So you better hope that as an education system, you know, those that helping young people develop the capacity for problem solving, to think critically, to help right, manage emotions, to deal with life stressors. Those are all really important protective factors related to problematic substance use. So I, I want to steer a little bit and you've covered so much. Oh my goodness, I could talk to you for hours because I think these conversations are lacking in a professional context and it's really important to kind of dig into these things. So you did talk a little bit about this connection between substance use or misuse with folks who experience marginalization. For instance, we see higher rates of substance use 
amongst youth who are experiencing homelessness or youth who identify as two-spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and under that umbrella as well. So I'm wondering, what can we as educators do to address those systemic factors that contribute to marginalization and might increase risk for substance use? You know, I think universally important is that notion of of connectedness and of creating safe, inclusive, equitable, wonderfully nourishing places called schools for our kids, right? And not just kids. And, you know, we haven't really touched on that, but all of what we're talking about is equally good at helping the adults in the building Mm, as well, right? When we create that kind of environment for our kids, we're helping create it for the adults. And I think that's a really important topic that, you know, you probably want to dig into on another day. But, you know, I I guess that's a pretty loaded question. There are absolutely times, and, and we know this as educators, that there's a need for a real intentional wraparound and more investment and supports for some people for a whole bunch of reasons, right? Whether that's based on race or gender identity or what have you, right? And I think that that sort of applying that that lens of this is good for everybody. And then there's also groups that are needing more investments and supports and real intentional efforts. And even things like those intentional getting to know the handful of, of students that are harder to connect with for whatever reason, right? That That's a bit more targeted. That isn't, yes, we want to be welcoming and caring for everybody, but there are some for whom we know we got to go a little extra mile mm-hmm. to build that kind of relationship. And that, by the way, has benefits to everybody. There's this wonderful strategy. It's 10 by 2, um, and it was related more on supporting positive behaviors in general in the classroom. Basically, the, the notion was, two minutes a day for 10 school days. So that person in your classroom, that's the one that you're like struggling the most to connect with for two minutes, come alongside and follow their lead in terms of what interests them. So not about, you know, the homework that was done or not done or whatever, but, but rather starting from the perspective and interests of that young person. You know, those two-minute check-ins over 10 days and the results said there is a significant improvement in the behavior and engagement of that young person in the classroom. And perhaps not unexpectedly, but an added bonus was that that same targeted effort to that one person had, in fact, a very positive effect on the classroom overall. Another example that I think, again, looks at and addressing the needs of perhaps more marginalized folks and yet has very broad benefit is the investment in GSAs or, you know, the Gay Straight Alliances, they, they come with different names. You know, there was some really good research done there out of UBC to say schools that actually invest in, in a sustainable way, GSAs, and by doing so, presumably also meaningfully are engaging those young people, um, not some tokenistic thing that they, you know, they can tick a box and say was done. Yeah. The... Um, impacts on the whole school and things like substance use and mental health were very positive, right? So what's good for some targeted few has a lot of promise for everybody. And I think in terms of what can we do more so, I also think just speaking up and questioning. And, and you know, I think as educators, as probably humans in general, we sort of feel like 
gee, can I really question this? Or can, you know, and, and I think if we bring it back to having kids at the center of how we design our system and how we do our work, you know, I, I kind of, I use the expression a lot of let's be human centered, but data informed and let that guide our efforts instead of expecting the young people to adjust for the system's needs, which sometimes we do. Case in point, when we kick kids out of school. Yeah, oh, I, I love that. And I think that was kind of the the thing that was underlying my question was really, you know, as an educator, I understand that experience of you have so many different facets of your job. And uh, it always feels like this is one extra thing or one other thing, but you demonstrate that it's actually just another layer of the work that we do. So it's a prominent conversation now, but, you know, much too late in the scope and the timeline of the school systems, but like anti-racism approaches to uh, education and schooling. I think that is a layer to the work that we need to do and not separate. And I think you spoke as well to like creating environments that support and celebrate gender and sexual diversity. That's another layer and not just like a whole separate notion because it all works together to create that supportive environment that, you know, you've spoken about that's so, so important in supporting like the overall health and well-being, but especially in protecting young people from the risks associated with substance use or misuse. And I think empowering them too, yes. right? Like I think our goal... To be, to be quite honest, I mean, kind of like around, let's use sexual health as another example because it feels safer. Um, you know, rumor has it that sex can actually be part of a really healthy, happy life. <laughs> rumor has it, yeah. <laughs> rumor has it. And the same could be said for yeah. substance use, right? So this isn't about, oh my God, this is all about, we've got to stop, you know, we have to prevent substance mm-hmm. use. Really, I think what we want to do is we want to prevent or at least reduce problematic substance use. And there's yeah. a difference. So fundamentally, we know that relationships are at the core of helping people be well and to flourish, period. Like I said, whatever metric you want to apply. And then helping individuals build the, the, the knowledge and the skills and the, that sense of I can do this and whatever life is throwing at them can go a long way to helping reduce problematic substance use. And by the way, teachers would feel the same, right? Like, don't ask me to do everything and not walk alongside and understand where I'm coming from and have time for open, honest conversations that really can give us time to to reflect on and, and learn from each other and in a culture of collaboration, not competition or power and control, right? And it's the same for kids. That's a good point. Yeah, I think that resonates absolutely loud and clear. Brilliant. Well, you have provided us with so much information. We spoke a little bit earlier about how there's just gaps in implementation. And so I think you might be able to paint a picture for us of what this looks like in practice, not just in a classroom in that the teacher sense, but kind of in a jurisdictional sense. Do you have any examples of multiple promising practices that are layered together and being taken up in, you know, either a specific school or in a school jurisdiction that kind of weave all of these pieces and bridge them together? This is one of those, you know, you feel like, okay, I'm not, we're never supposed to pick our favorites, right? Of but, <laughs> uh, I think there are some examples of good practice in a variety of settings and at, at a variety of levels. So one example I can think of is this English teacher who uh, she and I actually co-authored an article that was in the BC English Teachers Specialist magazine. 
And, you know, this is an English teacher. This is not a physical and health educator. And I think we've not talked about that, but I think we, we need to in the sense that these sorts of topics, kind of like, you know, systemic racism, are not a topic that should be covered through one subject area or one classroom or, God forbid, one unit, right? This is helping humans grow and evolve and, and flourish requires a look at this cross-curricularly and beyond curriculum to the informal curriculum, everything that we do in schools. You know, how do we help set kids up for success in the, in the true definition of success in my mind? So that English teacher had touched base because she had used a learning resource that was developed through the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research at University of Victoria that basically used a series of short stories that were fictional, that were really engaging, that basically surfaced substance use in modern times, whether it was the Afghan farmer growing poppies, or it was the high performing kid who was buying pot in the school library, as it turns out for his chronic pain suffering grandmother. But what stuck with me in chatting with this teacher was, she said, you know, this approach engaged my students. The student who would typically be at the back of the classroom and would roll the eyes and tune out came up and said, can I take that book home and, to, and borrow it overnight? Because th there's some great stories there. And I can tell you from my own kids' experience, probably the best drug educator in their high school was the English teacher, right? Who just often will do a nice job of creating that time and space for conversation and reflection and critical analysis and lots of good meaningful kinds of conversation. Um, and boy, if that happened within, you know, in more classrooms related to just being human, period, let alone substance use, I think where it is happening, there, there's some pretty rewarding learning experiences there for the adults as much as for the kids. Another example I'll share was working here locally with my own, one of my own roles that I have. Um, I support the work of a school district and there was a Public Health Agency of Canada had announced um, some dollars to support education efforts related to vaping. And I'm a huge believer in the power of youth voice. So these kids, rather than the teacher, you know, bringing in an expert or doing that classic sort of health lesson on let's talk about the dangers of vaping, turned it over to the young people who through various means, including rap, uh, social media campaigns, yes, posters, etc., they did the unpacking of, you know, let's work with some credit. First of all, what are some credible resources out there that we can glean from? And let's synthesize it in a way that makes meaning to me as a middle school student. And also with the expectation that I'm taking back and sharing it with my cohort of fellow middle school students. And you can see how it was so much more engaging from the student's perspective, obviously, but then the teachers themselves saying, honestly, this is one of the best things I've ever done with these kids. They got excited about it. They didn't just look at it as, oh, great, somebody's telling me what to do or what not to do. I think those sorts of real meaningful inquiry and, and engagement and the showing of learning in ways beyond what traditionally we might do in the certainly in the health education world, I think is another cool experience. From and I know I'm, I'm. It's a long answer to a quick question here. Sorry for that. Oh no, need to apologize. I think that's what you know, we're really excited to to hear about. Is like in action. What does this look like? So yeah, the more the merrier. 
So I have two more then. So one is a co-teaching model, right? So there is a, a series of learning resources called iMinds, kind of like iPod, only iMinds, again, from the center at UVic that I spoke of earlier. And we can share these links, by the way, for you to share out with folks if you're interested. That would be helpful. Yeah, we can share them in the show notes. Great. Excellent. Well, so there was a, a school that was very much an early adopter, a middle school, so grades seven, eight. And teachers wanted to do things differently around how they address substance use. So they decided that they would co-teach across their classrooms and, you know, basically lifelong learning and action, right? They were teachers who said, we know we don't want to do the same old simplistic sorts of things that, frankly, offer little promise from the evidence base, but also sort of disengage and don't help young people, period. And it's just not good pedagogy when we look at it from that lens as well. And so taking chances to do things differently in a collaborative teaching experience, I think, is another good example of what's possible and what can be super helpful. And I know in in that case that those teachers found it super helpful and not for very long, but long enough that, you know, it just gave them the confidence to say, yeah, this is cool stuff. And I do like this kind of approach versus what I traditionally might have done in doing drug ed. Right. Awesome. Uh, I really appreciate all of those examples, and I think our listeners will as well. I had never thought about co-teaching as an opportunity to shift practice, but I think that's a really cool possibility, and not just in substance use education. These are some kind of concerted, more long-term efforts that seem to be demonstrating success. I'm wondering if maybe we can leave off with like a first step, or what could a teacher do tomorrow to maybe either check in with themselves about their own values or the existing stigma around substance use in their particular context, or maybe to learn a little bit more about their role in the school health approach. But do you have any suggestions in terms of a starting point for, you know, what as educators or pre-service educators we can do tomorrow to start to kind of challenge these problematic narratives and and support research-backed, evidence-based, preventative factors to prevent substance use? Well, I guess for starters, I mean, your listeners are listening to this, and I hope that this perhaps has sparked some, some curiosity and interest in unpacking a little bit of what was shared, and you'll be sharing as part of the uh, podcast recording. I will provide a some links that will take people just to some some fairly short reads because everybody is busy and I appreciate that. But as part of sort of that additional learning that you want to have a glance at and, and think about, there's also some learning activities and resources there. And yes, while they're aligned to the British Columbia curriculum, I think they were developed um, the spirit of collaboration and sharing. And, and the hope was that other educators across Alberta and the country might find them helpful as well. So to poke around and to start small, but, and, you know, to your point around reflecting upon their own values and their own practice, there's a part of me that says the new teachers coming into the system, it would be hard to not look around this world of ours and recognize that we're far more complex and nuanced than any one presentation or simplistic measure can help support. And you know, I think they're going into the profession because they believe they believe in young people and they want to do everything they can that helps those, those young people flourish in their lives. And part of that is just helping them be well. 
And if you start from that perspective, and then you're curious about, so what's out there that can actually help me action this in my classroom, then point me to it. And then fellow colleagues, people at the district level, ever active schools, and your other provincial partners, and public health, another important partner, walk alongside and, and support me. So, you know, teachers are not alone in this. We have, as I mentioned earlier, we all share in wanting kids to thrive. And we also bring to bear a whole bunch of different expertise and resources that can help support those busy teachers in their classrooms and in their schools. So be curious, ask questions, connect with others who are eager to approach things differently. And find those curated lists of good stuff that's out there. There was absolutely no need to start from scratch and to do your own, your own work at creating new resources. I think what matters more than creating the resources is, is that headspace and that openness to say, we know we need to do things differently. And good pedagogy for starters suggests that this isn't about bringing in a sage in the stage. It's about meaningfully engaging young people in inquiry in dialogue, in conversations of mixed opinions, that's a really good thing for humanity. It's also a real good thing for reducing problematic substance use. I think that's such a beautiful and impactful sentiment to uh, leave our listeners with uh, as we kind of wrap up our conversation. So um, thank you once more, Cindy. Can't thank you enough for this lovely conversation and obviously just scratching the surface. Uh, Hopefully there are more of these conversations to come. But thank you again for sharing your expertise and experience with our pod class listeners. And thank you folks at home for joining us for another episode of the pod class conversations on school health, which is a series collaboration between Everactive schools and the Workland School of Education. Special thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music. And you know, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Everactive AB on Facebook at Everactive schools, Or, of course, you can hop on over to our website, everactive.org, to find more great content and resources. Until next time, the pod class is dismissed.